The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 4. And uh, as you're doing that, we are continuing our verse-by-verse journey through the first five psalms. Uh, Psalm 4 is widely believed to have been written by David. Uh, As I've told you before, there is some contention here and there about authorship in the psalms, but most people would say that David wrote this. Uh, Some people believe that it should be connected to, or at least understood to be from the same time period as Psalm 3, which was written during the rebellion of David's son Absalom. Uh, this assertion is less clear. Uh, it's not something that I think we need to bank on necessarily. Nevertheless, we find David again pressed and stressed, but refusing uh, to let that make him doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God, which tends to be a common theme throughout the Psalms in general. Uh, so I'm going to read Psalm 4 to you, and then uh, we will work through it together, okay? Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Amen. First of all, we see in verse 1 that David knows something very important, and that's that his righteousness is from God. He is a man that has lived a life full of the fingerprints of God's grace and mercy and power. He learned early on when he fought the lion and the bear while shepherding his father's sheep that his strength and his hope came from God alone. This humble acknowledgement of total dependence on God served him well as the enemies became more and more formidable. From a single pagan giant to whole armies and kingdoms, David had the confidence to step up to any fight but the humility to know it was God who won the victory every time. We see, as we did last week, the power of a well-sharpened testimony. David looks upon the favor of God in the past to encourage himself regarding the future. He says, you've relieved me in my distress. Right? He's looking back. He's remembering the times God has been there before. We talked last week about the power of your testimony, not only to keep yourself encouraged, but also as a tool to encourage others. David constantly reaches back into the past, remembering times of God's faithfulness, and now he's looking forward as he calls upon God for help, remembering his faithfulness then, and assuming, I think rightly, that God's faithfulness will not be different now. And so his testimony is a powerful tool uh, in the battles that he is going through in his own inner monologue, but also outside of himself. Uh, Even though he is encouraged by God's faithfulness in the past, David doesn't assume that he's worthy in and of himself to be heard by God. He acknowledges it is only by God's grace that he or any of us lift our voice towards heaven and that God would hear us. You see him say, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He knows that every single time we utter a prayer and it reaches the ears of God that grace has been extended to us. That this should never for us be a common thing. And we are sometimes so often invited to pray to God that we lose the awe of how amazing it is that he would first invite us to do that, secondly, listen to it, and thirdly, answer. I would ask us to contemplate, think about, are you in awe of the fact that God would hear your prayers? Does that bring you to a place of awe? Because one of the ways that we can push back against sin and temptation is by staying in a place of constant awe at God's goodness. One of the ways we can constantly be in awe of God's goodness is just a simple um, understanding and remembering that the very fact we have access to prayer and communication with him is a gracious act on his behalf. This is the God of the universe. 
This is the God that created everything. And he invites every one of us, as insignificant as we are in the grand scheme of things, to have his ear. And he invites us to come and speak to him as children. This shouldn't be a common thing for us. It should be something daily that we're thankful for. I find myself, every time I pray, wanting to thank God that I got to. (laughs) Because uh, it's a big deal. Do you thank him often for allowing you an audience before his supreme and sovereign presence? I think we should. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting just to note as we go through here that we already see the gospel unfurling in this as, as we see that, uh, first of all, David understands his righteousness is not his own. It comes from God. He understands that God's grace has been extended to him. That's the only way he's approaching him. We already see gospel foreshadowing in verse 1 of Psalm 4. As we move to verse 2, we see David shift gears a little bit, and he's now directing his attention to the source of his trouble. He's talking to his problems. Uh, And this is people who are twisting the truth and making David out to be a villain when really all he's done is be good to these people. Uh, Most of the ones coming against him at this point are people that are even within his own kingdom, people that he's been good to. He's brought peace. He's not been perfect, and, and nobody's going to be, but overall he's been a pretty solid leader, went down in history as one of the greatest kings of Israel, if not the greatest. Um, but yet, uh, those people still are figuring out ways to, to villainize him, uh, people that he's really been very good to. Uh, and he, so he asked them this question, how long will they continue in their foolish affection for the empty and worthless trappings of deception and disobedience? How long? You, you, you sense his frustration. You sent, as he's asking, he, he, sees, he sees because of his understanding of how God has dealt in his life, he sees the futility of these people continuing to pursue uh, after these ignorant things. And so he's saying to them, how long will you do this? How long are you going to keep banging your head against that wall? How long are you going to keep going down that path that has only led you to pain in the past? How long are you going to keep hurting yourself? Because even though, and we've seen this in the past, we saw this in Psalm 3 and the way he dealt with Absalom, David has this shepherd heart. He's had it from, from the time he was young, and this is something that God gave him. It's a gift God gave him. And so even though people are rising up against him, we see behind that the same kind of compassion that Jesus has for us, who were his enemies. And so you see this, you see this, this tension of, of frustration and anger at their ignorance, and yet compassion for the pain that their ignorance is causing them. And he's asking them, how long? How long are you going to do this? When are you going to get it? We could easily hear the voice of King Jesus declare these same words as he was constantly slandered for doing good. Think about his life. Jesus went through this same type of struggle. For example, uh, in Mark 3, we see Jesus doing incredible miracles, right? He heals a man with a withered hand. But what happens? There are haters standing by ready to complain that he did it on the Sabbath. He just did something incredible. Loving and compassionate, yet there's somebody over here going to bicker about what day it was. We see him then go on to appoint the apostles, and he begins to teach the truth of the kingdom, and huge crowds gather around him to listen, and here comes his family saying he's lost his mind. The Bible gives, in Mark, if you go read this, it gives this idea uh, in Mark 3 that his, like, his family was coming down to kind of collect him, like, it's time to go home, Jesus. <laughs> You've lost your mind, buddy, right? So they're going to take him home and and make him some tea and sit him down. Um, Yet more detractors when all he's doing is sharing the good news that that the kingdom is coming and there's hope that Messiah is here. Um, We see him heal many others. He casts out demons. He's setting people free from all types of afflictions. And here comes the scribes out of Jerusalem to say that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. He goes on to school them and say, well, a house divided itself against itself doesn't stand. And so your logic is erratic and foolish, so you can step off with that mess. But the whole point is, we could see Jesus share in David's lament here. That what he's done, go through Mark 3, he's done a series of, of only being good to these people. And yet what he gets in return for it is, is a bunch of slack. He gets a bunch of rah-rah and a bunch of mouth. And uh, this is, I think we see some of the same problem here uh, in David's life in Psalm 4. Um, And I'm sure for you that if you've lived your life in an unashamed of the gospel manner, then you have encountered this same kind of twisted, strange attack. For you to stand up and say that I love Jesus 
and I believe his word, is almost a guarantee that someone will have not-so-nice things to say about you. You see, here's, here's the truth. Those that, those that hate the truth hate its heralds. This is why today we are being labeled as hateful, ignorant, and bigoted for telling people the best and most loving news they could ever hear. I'm not sure if you're aware. Maybe, maybe you haven't had a lot of opportunities to be open about the fact that you trust Jesus and his gospel, that you believe the word of God is actually authoritative and something that we should listen to and obey, uh, that it's from God. Maybe you haven't had an opportunity to have those conversations, but if you have, then I am sure you have ran into this opposition where people immediately assume because you love Jesus and his word that you're archaic, out of date, somehow foolish. You can't be intelligent or educated because only those types of people would believe in, in some book that was written thousands of years ago and believe, furthermore, that a God had anything to do with it. They've reduced these scriptures down to pivy man-made sayings that they can draw bits and pieces out like a buffet if they like to, but not something that has any authority or should have any real bearing on the way we live. And for you to come and tell them that that's wrong, for you to come and tell them that that is a, a misinformed understanding of what's really going on here, they will instantly assume that what you are doing then is trying to in, in, a, in a hateful or angry way, control them or take something, some kind of freedom from them. When in reality, what you're trying to bring them is an offer of true, actual freedom. You're offering them the ability to do what it is they were created to in, instead of being chained to their impulses. This is the great hope of Christ. And yet, you will often, if you're going to be bold about Jesus, if you're going to be bold about the gospel, if you're going to speak it out, if you're going to live in such a way that reflects the love and glory of God into the culture that we find ourselves in today, you will face the same type of opposition. And so, we find already for ourselves application in this ancient struggle, right? David went through it. Jesus went through it. If we're going to follow Jesus, we will go through it. And so we ought to pay attention to how it is he works through thinking about this issue. And how it is he prays to God and finds solace from him. If you're going to share the gospel with people, if you're going to tell people that they are sinners, that need to be saved through the finished work of Christ, you will be labeled somebody that is hateful and bigoted. When really what you're trying to do is the most loving thing you can possibly do for a human. You see that twisting? It's the same thing they did to Jesus. He heals a guy's withered hand. Well, you did that on the Sabbath. He casts demons out of people that had been, had been, their life had been wrecked and controlled by it. And, and somebody wants to come along and say, oh, you're doing that by the power of Satan. We will, we will not escape this type of twisted, backwards, um, and aggressive attack. We have to know that that's coming, and we have to, in the same way that Jesus did, and you, and you see, if you go read Mark 3 later, you'll see that it even lets you know in the language a little bit. Jesus, if Jesus had a head vein, it was popping at this point. He was frustrated. And yet, and yet, we still see that often in times where those attacks were heavy, he would withdraw to a place, get with God. He would meditate on the scriptures. He would refocus, reorient himself to the mission, let compassion fill his heart again, get back out there and keep on mission. I think we should follow Jesus' example in that. Um, I've talked to many of you that have been on the brink of giving up in trying to share the gospel with difficult people. And I would just ask you, please don't. Withdraw again, get alone with God, and let him pour back into you the compassion and love that it took him to save you, and then get back out there. By God's grace and his strength, of course. If it was left up to us and what we have in the tank, we'd all quit a long time ago. Amen. Verse 3, it says, uh, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. First of all, I want to just point out to this that it's a really beautiful truth that the Lord sets us apart for himself. What does that really mean? Why would anybody set something apart? I think there could be a whole lot of reasons. Just a couple as I was thinking through and praying through this. Reasons why somebody sets something apart. Here's two. Something is of great value or brings you great enjoyment. If something's of great value to you or brings you great enjoyment, you may set that thing apart, set it aside for yourself. Or if something is of unique quality or special use, 
you may set that apart from other more common things. And so this language is what um, we see David using here to describe what God does with those of us that are his, that he sets us apart, that he plucks us up out of the many and sets us apart for his purpose and his enjoyment. And it, this language just gives us another facet and angle of the intimacy with which God relates to us. And I think it's, it, just, it, it just makes me love him more. It's just another way that he draws me close and another way that he's good to me, another way that he treats me like a son, which I, I don't deserve at all. And so uh, I think it's beautiful that, that he sets us apart. Um, I, was, I was trying to think, it, you know, because those are kind of, um, th- those, I don't know, those examples could be kind of dry without a little bit of explanation. So I tried to think of examples of things I set apart in my own life for those reasons. So number one is something is of great value or it brings you great enjoyment. Uh, I, I'm not really big on like sweets. I, you know, most desserts come by um, or, or somebody offers it. I, I could turn it down. It's not like I'm having this inner turmoil and some type of epic battle on the inside of me that really wants the cake. But I'm like, no, I'm just going to be disciplined and not eat it. Right? It's that's not really happening. Typically, it's like I don't I don't care that much. However, uh, when Natalie makes this one specific thing, it's, um, she takes Ritz crackers and she takes peanut butter and puts it on there and like smooths it out real nice and then covers that whole thing in dark chocolate. Um, and I don't know if it has a formal name. It, ne- it does not need one. It needs, it needs no name. It needs no announcement. Uh, it needs no further explanation because it is divine. And um, <laughs> so when, when she makes those, I do... Uh, definitely set some apart for myself before the eating machines that are called my children um, decimate them, right? And so in a high cabinet somewhere where even Natalie can't see them, normally I will put some in a Ziploc bag and set them apart for myself because these specific delightful treats bring me great enjoyment, and I quite like them. And um, if you have never had the experience of a Ritz cracker covered in peanut butter and chocolate, uh, I would highly advise that you find somebody with the skill set to put that together for you if you can't do it yourself, and give it a shot. Uh, that's from me to you, right? If you were worried about whether or not I loved you or not, I'm giving you a gift today, please. Don't trample upon it. Don't treat it like it's not special, because it is, okay? You're welcome. Uh, secondly, so that's something that's great of value to me, and it brings me great enjoyment, and I set that apart for myself. Secondly, um, I, I used to wear suits, like, you know, a straight-up business suit a lot more um, than I do now. Uh, but then I realized that Jesus didn't care so much about my clothes, but he cares a whole lot about the condition of my heart, and that suits annoyed me, and so I stopped wearing them. And uh, so I got rid of all of them, and I have two suits now. I have a marrying suit and a burying suit, and they are set apart just for that purpose, and those are about the only occasions you'll see me in one. And so uh, that's an idea or a thought of something I could think of in my life that's set apart for a specific purpose. Those things are in the closet unless there's a wedding or a funeral. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite happy about that, actually. So um, if you wished I wore a suit, I'm sorry. And uh, I love you, but it's not going to happen. Okay? <laughs> um, David knows that God's love for us causes him to listen to us. But he had also felt the frustration that comes from interruption in that line of communication. And uh, there are some things that can cause our prayers to fall to the floor instead of reaching the throne. Uh, And I'm, I'm talking about the fact that he says, But I know the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Uh... The Lord does here, and, and the, the standard mode of operation for child of God to father God is that they have a clear line of communication. There are, however, ways that we can kind of, um, through disobedience or just plain pride, we can, we can kind of make that transmission fuzzy or interrupted at times. And so um, I'm giving you this because maybe you would not say today with confidence, the Lord hears me when I call. Because maybe for a long time you've been lifting up prayers to God and not feeling like they've been making it there. Um, And and I just want to say to you that it's not because God fell asleep. It's not because God doesn't care. It's not because his uh, faithfulness to do what he has said on his end is somehow not operating. If it feels like that line of communication has been broken somehow, there's some things we can go through from the scriptures to help us assess, is there something on my end of the line that isn't quite working right? And so I just want to give you these 
so that you can think about it, because I know, um, and I've had conversations with some that um, they feel like their prayers are bouncing off the ceiling sometimes and, and not, not reaching the throne room. So here's some things that we can think through um, in, in ways that uh, we can assess ourselves. Uh, first of all, uh, one thing that can interrupt our prayer uh, connection with God and, and our communication is a lack of gratitude. Psalm 100 tells us that we enter the gates of God with thanksgiving and we come into his courts with praise. Uh, communication with God is centered upon our gratitude towards him. Um, this shouldn't be hard, right? Because if we're thinking correctly, the very fact that I'm about to pray should be conjuring gratitude and thus give me something to approach him with, right? If I'm struggling about everything else in my life, if nothing's going the way I wish it would, if I'm even on the verge of being so silly as to be upset at God, at God about some situation I'm dealing with, at least what I should have is gratitude for the fact that I get to come and talk to him about it. Yeah? Amen. Right? So lack of gratitude will totally interrupt that line of communication. And then you may be sitting there frustrated, getting more upset because you feel like God's not answering you when it's just your terrible attitude that might be the problem. All right. Double thumbs up. Uh, okay, so that's the first thing, lack of gratitude. That's the one I would check first because, guys, we are prone to have entitlement issues. We are prone to think that uh, even though, you know, God has set us apart. That's beautiful language. We are special to him. But uh, in, in, in the same, you know, at, at the very same time, we are, none of us are above his law. None of us are above his commands. And none of us are going to get near him without gratitude. It's not going to happen. Uh, and, and when we think right, it's, it's only right that we would approach him in that way. We should not be able to even think about coming to approach God without gratitude welling up in our hearts because we're getting to approach him. I know I'm beating that horse until it's totally dead, but I just think it's really important and we've got to make sure we get it, okay? Uh, here's the second thing that can interrupt our communication with God uh, or, or our prayer life. Lack of time in or affection for God's word. So a lack of time in God's word or a lack of affection for God's word can interrupt prayer. Proverbs 28.9 says this, He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayers are an abomination. I'll read it again. He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayers are an abomination. And so if we get this idea that the word's not that important, um, and I've even, I've talked to people in the past that get some, they, they mix in some weird kind of mystical stuff into their understanding of God. And they'll say, you know, I was kind of born just understanding the way God works. I don't need to read the Bible. Um, I, I can just pray and I got my own thing going with God. He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayers are an abomination. I mean, I don't know who you're talking to, but if you're disregarding the word, it's probably not Father God. Okay, good. You like that one. Let's find another one. Um, <laughs> here's, here's one. You guys probably know this, but we need to mention it. This, this will interrupt our communication and our prayer life with, with God. Unwillingness to forgive. Mark eleven twenty five. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. How we doing, Love City? Let me, there's a couple things I want to just read in there again. If you have anything against anyone, I'm going to add something. I'm not trying to add to the word. Anywhere, <laughs> at any time. Guys, on, you, you won't, your prayers are hitting the ceiling. Stop immediately and start running through the Rolodex of your heart and figure out, are you holding a grudge against anybody? Because you will not get to talk to King Jesus with a bunch of unforgiveness in your heart. right? And he tells us why in the parable of the wicked servant. You remember that one? Right? The one guy gets forgiven a huge sum of money, and then he goes and finds his buddy who owes him like five bucks and has him thrown in jail over the money. You want to talk about tick off King Jesus, he's not happy about that one. And the language he describes about what happens with that wicked servant that refuses to forgive after he's been forgiven so much, whoo, scary stuff. Right? Don't be the wicked servant. You want to interrupt your prayers? Go on ahead. Hold a grudge. Refuse to forgive. It's a quick way into depression and separation from God. We have to be quick to forgive. I can't forgive them. I can't forgive them. You don't understand what they did. 
I know, but the only way you can say that, just listen to me, I'm not trying to be harsh, the only way you can say something like that is to pridefully forget of how much you've been forgiven. You have to somehow think you weren't that bad. What Jesus had to forgive you of was, was, was not that big of a deal for you to be willing to hold a grudge and hold unforgiveness against somebody else. You can't do that. If you've been forgiven by Jesus, then that has to flow right through you and extend to others. And it's really freedom. I've heard said somewhere, forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, man. Most people don't even know when you've got a grudge against them. You're just sitting over there with, with rot, just coursing through your heart. It's not helping. It's hurting you. And it'll block your prayers. Don't do that. You've got to forgive everybody. I, 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 would, I, would ask us to, I would ask us to preemptively forgive. I, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but I think we should... I think we should, as God's people, make a decision before transgressions happen against us. We should make a decision we're going to forgive before it even happens. You might think, well, that's kind of goofy. What are you doing? But, but hold on. Didn't Jesus do that with us? I mean, has Jesus not already forgiven us for the dumb stuff we're going to do tomorrow? Yeah, he has. He already knows about it. And yet went to the cross knowing that he was paying the price for that, and then the next day and the next day. Preemptive forgiveness. Just decide today, because I, I think if we would do this, it would make the process easier once the transgression actually comes. If you already have a disposition in your heart, if you've already decided the truth is, I've been forgiven much, and thus I will forgive anyone, no matter what they do, I will forgive them. When that decision's already made, I'm not saying there will be zero struggle when it comes to, you know, rubber meets the road time, and i got to work through that in my heart, but I think if that decision's already made, there's going to be a, a pathway paved that you get to just walk down instead of having to plow new ground. Does that make sense? Let's, let's decide beforehand, like Jesus has with us, that we're going to forgive everybody. Here's another way you can block prayers. Uh, wrong motives. Uh, James 4.3 says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Motive matters, guys. Uh, I won't unpack that anymore because we say it enough that you guys know what that means. Okay, uh, we're in verse 4. It says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. David now turns his attention to speaking faith to himself. He's talked to God. He's addressed those that have come against him. He's kind of made a faith statement, and now he's turning his monologue to himself. He's instructing himself uh, in, Lord, in the Lord and in faith. And uh, he acknowledges first that though we may tremble, at the thought of our troubles, we do not need to sin and carry the weight of anxiousness and fear. He says, tremble, but do not sin. Where's that line? How does that work? As soon as we realize that fear is trying to grip us, we can follow the path that David has charted for us as a wise course of action. So what does he say? Tremble and do not sin. Then he starts to give us some of the ways that that can happen, right? So when, when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, when anxiety tries to come and, and, and wrap its hands around our throat and, and begin to choke out hope and life and joy, uh, which happens so often, and, and we begin to tremble, uh, we, there's a point where we can stop that process and not end up in the sin of worry and anxiousness. Here's how, so how does that happen? Here's, the, here's the, the course that David charts for us. He says, first of all, meditate in your heart upon your bed, and be still. I don't think the key here is that you have to be on your bed, but I think you should meditate and be still, <laughs> right? Uh, and this is not meditation in the Eastern or mystical sense uh, where the goal is to empty the mind completely or turn inward for answers. That's not what we're talking about. The, the word meditation has kind of been hijacked by, by some other folks. It's most widely known for those that would um, be seeking to completely empty themselves of thought or potentially be turning inward into some inner source for answers. That's not what is being talked about here. What he's referencing is the Christian practice of meditation. And when a Christian or uh, the people of God, when we meditate, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're pushing out those, those thoughts of trouble and anxiety and instead filling our minds and hearts um, with thoughts of God's power and promises because those always bring peace. And so if, if the trouble is, you know, 
uh, I have no idea how I'm going to pay this bill, right? And so you guys know the process. You, you start on the mental hamster wheel. You start thinking about the consequences of not paying the bill. Here's what's going to happen. Um, you think of the shame of not being able to pay the bill. You start beating yourself up over the dumb financial decisions that led you to the position of not being able to pay the bill, right? It's this mental merry-go-round of, of self-abuse. What, what Christian meditation is is to, is to stop that and then cast that aside and begin to think about what God's word says about this specific situation. What has he promised in his power to do? He's promised to provide for us. He's promised to give us grace even when we make stupid financial decisions. That's a good spot for you to say hallelujah, amen right there. But most of you probably never made a stupid financial decision, so you don't really relate to how that's God's grace to you, right? Because you guys are all like Dave Ramsey certified. Okay. Um, <clears throat> But instead of over and over and over again, which tends to be our tendency, let that anxiety and that fear grip us to the point where we're worked up into a tizzy and we can't breathe, right? Instead, we, we, we quickly understand that that process is starting, and then we, we kick those thoughts out. We begin to meditate, set our focus upon God's promise pertaining to that issue. You know, and finances isn't the only thing. The, the problems are as many. We could sit here all day and name all the potential reasons that anxiety would try to grip us, but all of those have a corresponding promise from God. If nothing else, if you can't, you know, as we begin to know more of the scriptures and have the scriptures written upon our heart, those promises and the power that comes with them will be readily available, which is amazing and I'm thankful for, and that's why I'm, part of why I'm excited about doing it. I think we'll be able to do battle better in the spirit, having more of God's word engraved upon our heart. But, but secondly, there's, there's certain promises that kind of cover all the bases, right? Fear not, for I am God. Fear not, for I am with you. Maybe you don't have yet memorized the specific promise that pertains to your situation, but here's what you can know. Just, just claim this one. Just meditate on this one. Fear not, for I am God. Unless you owe a bunch of money. Is that what it says? No. Unless there's a whole lot of people that don't like you. Unless you're about to lose your job. Right? Unless, unless your family's turned against you. No. He doesn't give any disclaimer. We can, by God's grace, fear not for two reasons, because of who he is and because he's with us. Now, I think it'd be great if we had more of the specific promises written upon our hearts that pertain to these things, because that's more things that we can meditate on, more things we can build ourselves up in our faith, and more things we can share with others. However, if all you've got is God's perfect promise uh, that has everything to do with his character and his willingness to be near us, um, that, that covers pretty much all the bases. And so I would commit that to you and say, let us, let us not sin in anxiety. Let us not sin in worry. When that trembling begins to come, let us stop jumping into that process of self-defeating anxiety. Let's fill our hearts and minds with uh, faith-filled meditations, which is what David is, is telling himself to do here. Tremble, do not sin, stop, meditate in your heart upon your bed, and be still. What else does he say? Uh, he says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. What's he mean by offer sacrifices of righteousness? Uh, I don't believe that David is saying that we should perform some religious ritual when we're feeling anxious. Uh, I think what he's saying in, in offering up the sacrifices of righteousness, when I look throughout the rest of the scriptures, I see that I see that God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And I see, uh, I see verses like in Romans where it says that we should um, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. And this, to give ourselves totally and completely to God as a living sacrifice, laid down on his altar for his purpose, completely turned over for his enjoyment and for the fulfilling of his mission, that that is our reasonable service. That, that if, you, if you understand the gospel, then it's, it's, it's like a two plus two equals four. If God has really done what he has said he has done through the cross and through making a way for us to be reconciled in Christ, I should then quickly and with joy lay myself down at his feet to be used for his purpose. And I, and I, I just think when, what he's talking about here is, is that, bringing yourself back to that process. And uh, th that's our sacrifice of righteousness. I don't think he's saying, you know, get a couple turtle doves and cut them in half. I don't think that's what he's referencing. Um, and I think part of what he's saying in doing that is this sacrifice of righteousness, this, this sacrifice of obedience, is that we should return to the basic disciplines that every person made righteous by grace 
through faith should have. And so oftentimes when we are rattled, oftentimes when we find ourselves um, oppressed and overwhelmed, we find ourselves full of anxiousness and worry, uh, and and oftentimes if somebody calls me and they're in that state, the first thing I want to know is, what's going on with these basic sacrifices of obedience, the the basic Christian disciplines of of prayer, of being in the Word, and of uh, worship? Prayer, Word, and worship. I would also add in there the fourth of, of being connected in Christian community, these basic things that we tend to kind of let go of when times are good, but then uh, start scrambling to try to grab back when things get hard. If we would stay in that place of continual sacrifice of righteousness and obedience to God, uh, we would be more stable when the winds come and uh, not blown about so much. These three things, prayer, word, and worship, these four things, I'll add in there, community with other believers, will vanquish fear and they will cultivate again in your heart and mind trust in the Lord and peace that surpasses understanding. To communicate with God through prayer, to build yourself up in his most holy word, to worship him and and just surrender, to sing and to spend time exalting him, reminding yourself of why it is he's worthy of our worship, and then to spend time with other believers in community. Uh, These things will bring you back to a place of... uh, of trust in the Lord and peace in your heart. And that's uh, what David encourages us to do here. Uh, let's, let's move on to verse 6. It says, Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. <clears throat> in, in light of this, as we begin talking about it, I want to read you a quote from um, the Treasury of David, which is Charles Spurgeon's uh, commentary on the Psalms. It's a little bit long, but I know sometimes if I start to read a quote, you're like, okay, I can check out for a minute. Track with me on this, um, because I think it's important. There were many, even among David's own followers, who wanted to see rather than to believe. Alas, this is the tendency of us all. Even the regenerate sometimes groan after the sense and sight of prosperity, and are sad when darkness covers all good from view. As our worldlings, this is their unceasing cry. Who will shew us any good? Never satisfied, their gaping mouths are turned in every direction. Their empty hearts are ready to drink in any fine delusion which imposters may invent. And when these fail, they soon yield to despair and declare that there is no good thing in either heaven or earth. The true believer is a man of very different mold. His face is not downward like the beasts, but upward like the angels. He drinks not from the muddy pools of mammon, but from the fountain of life above. The light of God's countenance is enough for him. This is his riches, his honor, his health, his ambition, his ease. Give him this, and he will ask no more. This is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Praise God. Verse 7 tells us uh, what the people are complaining about in verse 6, right? So uh, they they are pushing forth the dramatic cry of blind fools unable to control their tongues with the reins of gratitude. Uh, These complainers have decided that there is nothing good, nowhere. Show us something good. Where is there anything good? Nothing's good. Everything is tragic and terrible because they don't see the economic conditions they think they deserve. Right? Okay, where am I pulling that from? Uh, It says, many are saying, who will show us any good? And David says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. And so we know this is an agricultural society. We know that this grain and new wine, the time of harvest when that comes, that's that's pretty much how you know how the next year is going to be, right? This is the economy of the day. And so uh, what he's saying is, you know, these, these people are complaining because apparently things aren't going real good in that way. Uh, the, the money's not flowing, the wine's not flowing, the grain's not flowing. And so um, because the money situation, because the economy around them is bad, what, what are, what, where have they gone to, right? This one factor in, in, in all the myriad of factors in their life and, and what have they done? Show us something good. Nothing's good. All this tragedy. Everything's bad. There's nothing good. There's nothing praiseworthy, right? It's the, it's the, constant, uh, it's the constant cry of a complainer. 
We see David say that the joy and gladness given to him by God the Father far surpasses the fleeting excitement of monetary gain. Um, I, I don't want us to think this only applies to money struggles. I think there is a tendency inside of humans to get very focused on one facet of their life, uh, one facet that maybe they think is, is more important than others. And if something doesn't go right in that facet, they are willing to throw a wet, dark blanket over all the rest, refuse to see any light anywhere, refuse to see any hope anywhere, refuse to see any reason to praise God anywhere. And what is David's answer? God, may the countenance of your beautiful light shine upon us. He wants, he wants God to come and show up in such an undeniable way that all these, these moaners and complainers would let their vision be fixed and adjusted off of all of their joy being based on how much coins they have in their pouch and being able to find the, the ability to be full of joy and contentment simply in who God is. If, and that's the thing. It doesn't matter how many of the facets of your life you feel like aren't lining up with your expectation or hope if we have connection to God. That's what David's saying. You, O Lord, you've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Right? Harvest time was a fun time, right? Their whole calendar was built around this. Harvest time is when the festivals were because all the stuff's coming in and now we're going to have a party. That was a hoorah time. Apparently things weren't that way, and so the party's gone, and all of life is terrible. And what David's trying to do is say, hey, listen, guys, it's, life's about more than that. And if everything else we have crumbles into nothing, but we have God Almighty, we have the light of his countenance shown upon us, if, if he still is willing to be with us and for us, if we're still his people, then this stuff fades back into nothing. And we can have joy and gladness that would far surpass even if all the grain and wine was the way we wish it was. If this other facet of our life, and it could be all kinds of ways, right? Not just how much money's in the bank, but you know what's going on with your family, your station in life, what's going on as, as far as relationships broadly. There's all kinds of ways where we could, this one singular thing becomes our, our, our one focus, and we get this idea that there's Nothing then worth praising God about if that one thing's not going right. And we say crazy stuff like, who will show us anything good? And uh, again, I think we see some of David's frustration. And, and part of what he's, I think part of what is happening here is he's catching the slack um, for these complainers. They're pointing some of that at David and making it his fault. Um, when again, if he's done nothing else for these people, he's modeled for them repentance and a life of vibrant relationship with God. And if a king does that and nothing more, he's been a good king. He's been a good leader. David asked God to shine the light of his countenance upon them all so they would see the beauty of his majesty and the unmatched splendor of his glorious radiance and never again be so foolish as to utter words like, where is there any good. Verse 8, uh, I find it really interesting that David often equates, if you notice this as we've been going through these few Psalms, David, David often equates the peace of God with sleep. And some of you are already on that train like, yes, yes, I got a witness right here. Yes, sleep is godly and I do lots of it. Yes, stop it, you sluggard. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's interesting, in, in every one of these Psalms, uh, almost, we've seen him reference sleep and tying it to the peace of God. I think that's really interesting. Uh, and, and it makes me wonder if maybe at certain times David struggled with sleep. Um, and, and he's rejoicing because God has helped him in that area. It, it makes me think that typically you're really grateful for things you've experienced difficulty in, right? And so he again and again, he, he references this idea of when God's peace is upon him, then, then he has restful, sweet sleep. Uh, let me read this to you. Uh, this is Proverbs 3, starting in verse 22. And it said, it's talking about wisdom and understanding. So they, wisdom and understanding, will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's coincidence of, or of no consequence that David mentions sleep in connection to the peace of God. And um, as I was studying for this, I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to stop at this point in the sermon and take a moment uh, for us to agree by faith as a church family for those that may at this point be struggling with sleep. Because I don't know, if you've never struggled with, with getting good quality sleep in your life, you'll probably have a hard time relating to this, but it affects absolutely everything makes it very hard to function, makes it very hard to think. It affects your health in all kinds of ways. And I, I see here as one of the precious promises of God, of those, those who will follow after him, those who will gain wisdom and understanding by the power of his spirit, that one of the promises we have from God where we can beat back the effects of the curse is even in this world, as difficult as it is, we can have God's peace and thus sweet sleep. And so I want us to agree together. So would you guys just, um, let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute. And just as a sign, a point of contact of faith, if you at this moment or have a history of and, and you want us to agree in faith with you, and I want you to know that my hand's in the air in this, um, that I need help in, in prayer in this area. If you need help um, from Jesus about your sleep, uh, just raise your hand, put it in the air, and uh, let God know that we're talking about you and that you need hope and help by faith, okay? I see those hands. You can put them down. Uh, let's just join together by faith as a church family and pray for those among us who uh, have been attacked in this area. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for the promises of your word. Father, we feel ourselves being stirred by your spirit to, uh, to have these precious promises written upon our hearts. And uh, Lord, one of the things that we see constantly as David discusses what it what it looks like to have the peace and the comfort uh, that comes in relationship with you is that we should be able to lie down and we should be able to have sweet, restful sleep. And so, God, we're claiming that promise right now uh, by faith. We're asking for your help with it. I ask for every single person whose hand was raised that, God, as they lay their head down, that whatever, would, whatever anxiety grips them, and, and maybe it's not anxiety. Maybe, maybe they're confident in you. Maybe there's just something physiological, maybe there's something with their body, internal clocks not working right. I thank you, God, that whatever it is, none of it is beyond the reach of your hand, that you are mighty and powerful. So if it's an issue of healing needed in their body, we by faith ask for that. Lord God, if it's something that has to do with their mind racing, an inability to shut it down, an inability to just uh, be able to meditate in your precious promises as opposed to rehearse what it is that troubles them, I ask God that you would come by your Holy Spirit, bring comfort and peace. And I ask for every single person that calls Love City home, that when they lay their head down at night, they would have sweet, restful sleep. Jesus, we are a church that cares about being on mission, and, and God, we can't afford to be low on energy. We know that it's going to take everything we got, plus some that you're going to have to give us in order to get this job done that you've called us to. And so we ask God that you would help us. We're asking by faith, and we know that you hear, and we're thankful for that that you would help us to have restful, uh, restorative sleep um, for your glory and for our good. Thank you for hearing us about it, Lord. Thank you for letting us bring something that in the grand scheme of things, a good night's sleep for us it seems so trivial in the grand scheme of all that has to do with your kingdom and all of history uh, and what you're doing. But I know, Lord, because of your word that you care about it. And Lord, uh, we are so thankful for that. And so we set this request at your feet and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for doing that, church. I know that means a lot for those that are struggling in that way. <clears throat> May we be a people who know where our righteousness and help comes from. May we never stand down or shrink back because of those who would twist our love for God and our love for them into something evil. And may we be people who are full of peace and contentment, satisfied by the perfect provision of our faithful Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, thankful, uh, we are thankful for the Psalms. We are thankful, Lord God, for the brutal honesty we find in them. We're thankful, Lord, for uh, the fact that the writers of these Psalms had walked through life with you, had seen your faithfulness, had learned to trust you, and were able to communicate that. And even in this singing, as they're writing these songs, they're working through it. They're, they're struggling through it, and they're seeing, Lord God, at the end, uh, that your deliverance is sure because you're faithful. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, the openness of these struggles because sometimes, Lord, even in a, in a church community that um, tries so hard to walk in the light and to talk constantly about not living behind the masks that we're tempted to, uh, sometimes, Lord, it's, just, it's hard to be real about struggle. But we, we learn from these psalms that uh, we can start out by declaring our trouble, but that it can always end by declaring our praise because... 
uh, you are faithful. And so I thank you that we can be honest. Thank you that we don't have to be fake. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you're faithful in all things. Thank you, Lord, that um, the gospel is the absolute most loving message that anyone could ever share. And Lord God, I ask that uh, if any person here, if any person that's a part of this fellowship has, uh, has had their excitement or their passion for sharing the gospel squelched or tamped down because they've been accused of somehow being unloving for trying to share the most loving message, uh, I just ask, Lord God, that you would, um, by your Holy Spirit, relight that fire, that you would uh, correct, Lord, their perspective and bring them to a place where they know that to share the fact that every single one of us has fallen short of perfection, but that you, King Jesus, made a way that we could be reconciled by faith, that that is in no way unloving or hateful or spiteful, but it's full of compassion and the deepest, most beautiful love that can be found anywhere. May we be convinced of that. May we live in light of it. May it fuel uh, our mission and, and the fact that we are evangelists on mission, ambassadors of your gospel in every place we go and at all times. Thank you, Lord, that we can do that. We can be bold because we know our message is loving, no matter what uh, the naysayers might think. And um, Lord, I thank you for the promise of, uh, of sleep. I thank you that we can rest. I thank you for the promise of peace. There are so many things, God. If we were to sit down and really write it down, look around, think about all the things that seem to not be as they should, uh, the, the list would probably overwhelm us to, to really do that. But Lord, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sit and meditate on all the things that are wrong. Lord God, we commit to you uh, with the help of your spirit that we're going to meditate on things that remind us of your power, that remind us of your promises and your faithfulness to be true to those. And uh, in so doing, Lord, that we're going to be encouraged. We're going to be full of faith and joy and excitement and, uh, and holy fire. And because of that, Lord, I know we'll have opportunities to share it with others. And so for these things, we are really thankful. We love you. We praise you. Give you all the glory for all of it. Because if we were left to ourselves, we'd be a mess. And we know that. We really love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.